Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast was funded by the Wellcome Trust, Chartered College of Teaching, and listeners like you. So today we have with us uh, Miriam Reiner. So Miriam, if you could introduce yourself to the group. So what is, you know, who are you? Where are you from? Um, you know, what is your, what is your main area of research? So my background is in physics, but what I do today has probably nothing to do with physics except the methodology of research and some basic concepts that come from physics which are important in the work that I'm doing in measuring the fields in the brain. So I'm the head of the virtual reality and neurocognition group in the Technion, which is the Technion Institute of Technology in Israel, in Haifa. And we have a lab, and the lab uh, looks at how people perform in virtual reality. So very shortly, very briefly said, what I do is I put people in a virtual world, a very surrounding virtual world, very immersive, in which you can see objects, you can touch objects, and you can hear different kinds of events. So if two objects collide, you will hear the collision, you will see the collision, and you can also touch the objects that collided. So while people do different tasks in the virtual world, I connect them to uh, measures such as EEG. EEG is a way to measure the activation of the brain. And when I measure the activation of the brain, I try to correlate between the events in the brain and the events in the world. So I try to see what is activating the brain when somebody solves a problem in the real world. In this case, it's not really real, it's a virtual world, but what I do is I use the virtual world in order to design events that are of interest to me. So for instance, I can put you in a virtual world, ask you to solve a problem, And while you do that, I measure your brain activations. And I look at your brain activations and I correlate between the brain activations in between your best performance. So I know what is activated when you perform best. So that next time I know what I need to activate in order to force you to perform best. So this is basically what I do in general. Uh, and I try to apply to different kinds of problems. So it could be the kind of problems that a surgeon would have in the operating room when the surgeon has to actually do a particular kind of procedure. But it could be also the kind of problem that you have when you have to catch a falling pendulum and I want to see how you catch it because when you catch it, you have to predict where the pendulum is going to fall and this is how I know what you think is the right way for the pendulum to fall and I don't know if you heard but many people have many misconceptions in physics and this is how I can discover the misconceptions in physics and I can find brain correlates of misconceptions in physics for instance. Yeah, so you're you're basically taking real world scenarios but creating them in a virtual reality and looking at the relationship between the way someone's brain acts and the way they're behaving in the real world. That's very this cool. Wonderful. You said it better than I oh, did. No, no. So this is great. 
No, I, yeah. I thought it was fascinating as you were describing it. And what I was going to ask is something you already covered, which is what concrete examples could you give us of the types of problems? And you mentioned the pendu- the falling pendulum. Could you describe a little bit more what a surgeon might do, like that example that you just of mentioned? Of course. And I have a few papers on that, so I'll describe just one of them. So, for instance, you have a surgeon that must do a particular procedure, for instance, to burn particular points in the abdominal area, and have to, and he must do that, he, she, must do it really fast. And what I can do is try and measure the activations in the brain with what's known as EEG, which are electrodes that I put on the scalp, which I mentioned before. And I can correlate between optimal performance, that's accuracy, and how fast the surgeon will do that. So these are two variables that I measure, the duration of time, how fast that person is, and the accuracy. And I correlate between that and between the activations in the brain. So that's one thing. So for instance, what I found is that when people have to do it, when they see that on two-dimensional screens, as they see that in a laparoscopic procedure in the operating room, there are more errors than when they see that in a virtual world with depth. And not only that, not only there are more errors when it is flat compared to virtual worlds with depth, but also the mental load, the cognitive load is higher when you look on a flat screen compared to a three-dimensional screen. So what does this mean for medical education? It has implications, right, for how we should be teaching surgeons? Wonderful. So obviously a virtual world would be a wonderful kind of technology to use in order to educate, in order to train people to do such procedures and this is this brings me a little bit to a higher level of what I do and what I'd like to say is that what I'm doing right now is less with a focus on what's happening in the classroom although there are many implications and more on what kind of technology we can use in order to improve education and training so I'm looking I'm a little bit more futuristic I'm a little bit more futuristic in the sense that I believe that the school will evolve to be mainly a social environment for social learning. And I believe that social learning is super important. It's really one of the foundation of what we do as humans. But there is also another side to it. And the other side to enhanced learning is technology. And right now we have new technologies that come up and one of the new technologies is virtual or augmented reality. And we can use that in order to design the perfect environment that will fit how the brain works in order to improve and enhance learning. And is it okay if I bring a, a totally different kind of example now? Oh yes, please do, yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit about um, something which is known as neurofeedback and learning is that something Mm -hmm. which is of interest yes okay so neurofeedback is a methodology in which i measure your neural activations 
and I provide you with a feedback that tells you what are your neural activations. And I ask you to try and control that. Oh, do they use this with um, students or children on the autism spectrum? They did. And yes, and not only, but also with ADHD. It's used a lot with ADHD. It's used with numerous kinds of uh, applications that I'm not going to talk about. <laughs> okay. What I'm going to talk about is about an application that would fit anybody, everybody, not just autism and ADHD and so on. Yeah, fantastic. But just the regular learner. So the question that I asked was, can I use neurofeedback in order to help people control their what is known in an everyday language as brain waves? Mm-hmm. I would call it oscillations or time frequencies. And as people might know, there are different frequencies. That means how many times per second would a particular oscillation change? Mm -hmm. How many times it goes up and down per second? Perfect, yep. Okay. So what I was interested in is, is especially in consolidation of memory. And by analyzing the work that has been done over the years, I found that consolidation of memory happens, of course, mainly at night. And, and consolidation of learning is really just kind of compacting and put, keeping everything, st- storing, right? Storing those memories in yes. our brain, so to speak. Yes, storing memories is a good way. There are Perfect. two ways to store memories. It could be the first registration of the memory of what you learned. Mm-hmm. So for instance, if you learn how to multiply two long numbers, mm-hmm then it is stored in an initial place called the hippocampus. But then later on it goes to a different place and this is where we think of the consolidated memory and this happens during the night. And that's where you could go go back and get it, sort of pull it back later yes, on for retrieval. this is where you retrieve it. And in a previous podcast episode we actually talked about the effect of sleep on learning. So it's yep. perfect. That's yes. great. So when I analyze the process that happens during the night, which seems to be correlated to what we call consolidation of memory, it turns out that there is a specific kind of oscillation that is correlated with or related to the process of consolidation. Mm -hmm. And that's known as theta, which is between four to seven or eight oscillations per second. And then my question was, if I teach you, after you learn something, suppose you learn how to play a Chopin, a totally new piece of Chopin. You've never studied that before. You've never done it before. You don't know how to do that. But now you work on it for about three hours between eight in the morning and 11 in the morning. And you work and work until you come to perfection. And that's it. You don't you cannot learn anymore you're done you got your best for that session right for that <laughs> yes session. mastery and sometimes. now exactly yes. you got to the point in which you actually master this piece and now i want you to consolidate that but it doesn't happen until the night and between now 11 a.m and the night there are so many things that can happen that will interfere with your, what you learned in the morning there is still time needed for to stabilize that. So that 
if it is not stabilized and something else interferes, it will ruin what you learned. So if I test you in the evening, right, sorry, if I test you right after, at 11 a.m., and then test you again in the evening, and test you again after 24 hours, your best performance would be after 24 hours, of course, mm -hmm. because then at night you consolidate what you learned. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that if I want to consolidate right away, what I need to do is probably try and use what happens at night. And you remember what happens at night is theta. Mm -hmm. So I want to tell you, I want to teach you, I want to train you to raise your theta. And my question is, if I train you how to raise this theta, will that consolidate the memory of Chopin? So you're asking if without the sleep, there is some way that you can raise these particular brain waves, theta, to consolidate theta. right away. Almost like meditation maybe as if well, almost I don't know if this is meditation but some I read some papers that meditation might increase theta I don't know though so what I'm saying is I want to try and find a technique to improve your ability to control your brain waves right and you mentioned right. futuristic I mean this is quite futuristic but the idea so yeah, it's futuristic, but I did it. Yes, it's, the idea could be that in the classroom you could actually have sort of a pre-lunch sort of session where you're, whatever it is, controlling those brain waves and trying to increase, increase theta, and theoretically that could help consolidate right in the middle of the school day. With your smartphone. Nothing but your smartphone. That's very cool. So did you, did you say you already succeeded to find yes. a technique? Wow. Yes. So we... So what I did is I provide people with a feedback to the oscillations that I measure on their scalp. Mm -hmm. And the feedback comes from a computer screen, or it could come from a virtual reality, or it could come from the smartphone screen. Mm -hmm. And the feedback will tell you how strong is your theta. And if your theta is not strong, you will see a feedback telling you, no, it's not strong enough, please try to raise it. And somehow, in a miraculous way, everybody, including my mother, who is above 80, are able to do that. Without really knowing how they're doing it, exactly. right? Exactly. And if you ask people how do you do that, people don't really know how they do that. When I teach my perception class, I talk a little bit about this um, related to the autism spectrum. Yep, and, exactly. It's and very similar. I show a little video where um, a child is getting a car to move, and that's how they're training uh, the child to raise various levels. This is levels. what I use, a car, a moving car, a racing car, actually, yes. Yeah. My students always ask me, well, how are they doing it? And I say, I, I don't know. It, it just sort of happens. And I, I try to use the analogy, it's sort of like at the chiropractor. My chiropractor will point to a specific muscle and say, move that muscle. And I kind of can't do it, but after sort of trying, eventually I can get to where I can you know, tighten a certain muscle on my back. But I can't explain how I did it. I just eventually was able to get it. It seems kind of like that, though I'm not sure that analogy helped my students that much. It's very vague. Well, for me, I'm over here. I think my feet is through the roof right now because I have not heard of this before and my mind is kind of blown. I think it's amazing that this actually can happen and can work. Yeah, so we did an experiment 
and uh, we we found 15 percent, 12 and a half percent improvement right after neurofeedback, 27 minutes of neurofeedback. Additional uh, improvement after 24 hours after night sleep, which means that night sleep and neurofeedback actually interact together to improve each other, and further improvement after additional night sleep until a week. So it was published, it's available, and it's called, the title starts with Better Than Sleep. And if you look for Better Than Sleep, Miriam Reiner, and with some of my students, then you'll find it. That's great, and we'll attach, we'll, we'll link to that in the show notes so that the okay. listeners can, can access the reference. It was published in a journal called the uh, Biological, uh, yeah, Biological Psychology. And there is a new paper which was published just a few day, two months ago in neuroscience. And it's the same, it repeats the same, just shows even more effects, which is which I found really nice. It's really exciting. Yeah. So so to kind of take a step back a little bit and talk more broadly, um, so your area of research with virtual reality, how what's the one thing of everything that you think teachers should take away from your area or from your work? Even if it's something that hasn't happened yet or, or something that's coming down the line, what's sort of your one takeaway for the teachers who are listening? It's so difficult for me to say that, but I, I guess it depends on what teachers find interesting. I think that um, if you think of the future of education, it will be some sort, the way I view it, and of course it's limited to my personal views, I see it as a combination between the social aspects of school, which are extremely important, the mirror neural system and so on at school, and the role model of the teacher, and the interaction between the students, all these are extremely important. And I think at school, this should be the focal point. This is what we should develop and make sure that school knows how to do that. And I think that in addition to that, we'll have labs just as we have the physics lab. And we'll be able to go there and take a few minutes of rest and maybe enhance our abilities. And you know, using the same kind of technology of neurofeedback, I was able to find a way to discriminate between different kinds of problem solving with brainwave mechanisms. I was able to find a way to enhance the spatial intelligence of people with neurofeedback. So I think this, this kind of um, addition of the kind of gain that we can have from these new kinds of technologies can be integrated in the school, either in a lab or part of the classroom. I think that one other thing that teachers should take with them is that 45, 50 minutes, 90 minutes should be illegal. And it should go to much shorter periods with some stops in between that will allow kids to enhance their tita. <laughs> That's great. That's yeah. a very good point. Listening to this, I'm so excited about sort of where neuroscience research is going and the applications to the classroom. It's sometimes very difficult, I think, to connect some of the neuroscience research to classroom application. And you've, you've done a wonderful job explaining that. So thank you so much. 
I have a question. I'm wondering whether you think we as teachers and other teachers should be worried about our roles going away and you know being replaced by technology. Definitely not. I don't believe that technology can in any way substitute a teacher. I mean, we are humans and we are able to connect to other humans through facial recognition, through facial expressions, through subliminal cues that I get from your eyes. You don't look at me right now, but when you do, I can get that. So there is much more than words that we communicate to each other. And this is why the social interaction is so important. So I don't believe that ever any technology can come instead of the teacher and that the teacher is super important in any teaching learning scenario. Also, I think the teacher is learning. You know, it's not only the student that learns, but the teacher learns different things. But there is a mutual learning going on, a mutual adaptation going on. So I think that teachers, schools are super important. And I, I think that social aspect and in interacting with the students is, is, at least for me, the reason that I love teaching and sort of getting those, the brightening up in their eyes and that sort of thing. So. I'm, I'm the same. I mean, I teach students, you know, master and PhD students. This is what I enjoy. I mean, just writing a paper is fun and I just writing, but it is the interaction, the social interaction, which creates new ideas. You know, brainstorming is a social process of creating new knowledge. Well, I think you described so well these very complex concepts and techniques, and I personally found it extremely fascinating. And you have um, you have a startup, right? Could you tell us a little bit about your startup and, and what you're doing with your the visuals? Yeah. So one of the things was trying to identify how I can improve learning by identifying what are the points that are very difficult for the learner. So with quite a simple camera, I look at the eyes of the learner. Imagine a person who's trying to learn physics while looking at the screen of a, of a laptop. With a simple camera, I look at the eyes, and while the person learns, I extract from the eyes different types of patterns, I analyze those patterns mathematically, and I come up with a measure of mental load and stress. And I can see at what point the person gets into a stress that would tell me that the person did not understand what they were learning. At that point, right away, I would stop the learning process and put up a question. And this could be done with a simple, stupid algorithm. So I put up a question, listen, this was this clear for you? Would you like to ask additional questions? Would you like to talk to somebody? Would you like us to explain it in a different way? And what we found is that when we do that, we can reduce the learning time by about 60%. So the learning time is much lower, learning is much more efficient, frustration is not that high, and the person can learn fast and not go with all those emotions that go with the feel of failure. So, do so you, that's it. Do you think that eventually, I'm imagining what this might look like in a classroom, having students going through lessons on the computers, but having the teacher there interacting with the students, and then the computer might tell the teacher, you know, 
Johnny is having difficulty or, you know, kind of flagging where the teacher can go so that you can have a little bit more one-on-one instruction without basically one-on-one instruction that's efficient. So it could be in the classroom, but it could be also at home and the teacher could be online or somebody else could be online or a friend could be online. Or we can put in, again, with a simple algorithm, we can put alternative different types of explanations because we know that just repeating an explanation won't help. But different types of explanations might help. Really, multimodal, yes. Exactly, multimodal is right. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. The Learning Scientist podcast is funded by The Wellcome Trust and listeners like you.